0: Two brains are better than one. So, you know, you work in a single-access hospital or there's only one physician, which is in the ER, and they are upstairs dealing with someone in the ICU who's managing the department when something comes in. I mean, that's where we have to have that skill set available to, to help care for these patients.
1: Welcome to the Emergency NP and PA Workforce Podcast. Here we navigate the EM labor market, the role of the EM, NP and PA, the relationship between the clinicians and facilities, and all the financial issues that come with it. I am your humble host, Omar Nava. I'm an emergency medicine physician assistant who's been in the business for 20 years. I'm also the vice president of advanced practice provider services at Ivy Clinicians, and I'm very excited to bring you this podcast to all the emergency medicine clinicians out there. We know what you go through and we appreciate you. Today, I'm very happy to host our guest, Philip Henn, Emergency Medicine Physician Assistant and Site Lead, APP in Los Angeles, California. Welcome, Philip. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for uh, joining us. Philip, why don't we start off by telling our audience a little bit about uh, uh, you know, where you work and, and how long you've been doing this? And, and then we'll take it after that.
0: I'm actually in Visalia, California, which is uh, about four hours north of Los Angeles in California. Um, I work at a, I guess, what's classified as a community-based academic setting. We are in a public district inpatient care facility. And uh, I've been here for about 11 years. Uh, I became the uh, the site lead about six years ago, along with becoming the uh, the fellowship program director. Awesome.
1: Why don't you tell us next, Philip, a, a brief story of your journey on how you became an emergency medicine leader? As, as you know, we, we don't inherently get leadership training in uh, PA school. And, and then when we get out, uh, you're expected to be a clinician. But tell us how you
0: got to be an EM leader. Oh, uh, you know, I was born doing CPR. So, I mean, it was already in my blood as soon as I came out. Um, no, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, you want to call it like, uh, media influences. You know, I, I watched ER with George Clooney, uh, scrubs was a favorite house was a favorite. I don't know. The fact that there is like a niche that was respected and appreciated people who had short attention spans, I think was a big draw. I, you know, I did, you know, the undergrad thing. I. Became an EMT, and, and uh, shout out to my first job as a trauma tech at UCI Medical Center in Orange, California. I mean, that's where I learned so much, um, and I then I started seeing, you know, where I could fill a niche, and that's uh, I I met other trauma techs that were going to PA school, and that's kind of what led me to going to PA school, and then wanting to stay in emergency medicine, and I think I was very fortunate to know what I wanted to go into as soon as I got into PA school. And I kept going towards that route and everything I saw, every rotation, I kind of looked at how it would relate to EM. And I wanted to look for a job that allowed me to to grow, that would give me an opportunity to not only have a a scope of practice, but the ability to have, I guess, vertical growth as well. And that's where I ended up in, uh, in Visalia. And uh, that's where I've been ever since. And I watched this place become um, an academic center creating um, physician residencies and then with that came new leadership and also became kind of a great sounding board when talking about like what is the future of emergency medicine and what is the future of the workforce and what are the, what's the political atmosphere that's going on in, in the nation and in California and I don't know what else to say. <laughs>
1: No, no, that, 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 that's great. Um, uh, I think in, in my uh, tenure, more often than not, uh, when I found myself in a leadership position, I didn't necessarily seek out uh, to fill a leadership uh, position. I just kind of took stock of the operational environment or, around me, and, and I saw, well, that, that needs fixing, or there's, there's a void there that needs to be filled, or we need a little bit more organization over, over here. And if, if somebody was filling that role of, of a leadership role, then, then that was more than fine for me. Many times I didn't find anybody in that role. And I thought, well, if I'm going to complain about something not being right or something that needs to be fixed or a need for development or filling a void, then I guess I should stop talking about it and start doing
0: something about it. Did you have somewhat of a similar gravitational pull? Yeah, meant to that. I mean, I think... It's very easy to complain about life. It's another thing to actually try and do something about it and try to enact change or and try to or to try to be a role model. So yeah, absolutely I think as time went on and you know you practice medicine you kind of start asking yourself what what else can I be a part of and and how can I, you know, change things? How do I enact a, a culture or and instill a work ethic. Uh, how do I look for efficiencies or try and create a more standardized, you know, workflow? I mean, absolutely. I think those are challenges that you hope that every app wants to become a part of. Um, I was also very fortunate to to have really great mentors who they were all, in, you know, every every physician or partner, um, they they're involved in some sort of leadership aspect, whether it's being, you know, chief of staff of the hospital or vice chair or being the president of Cal ASAP or, or whatever. And so kind of seeing that, I think of course helps breed some comfort level in that you can actually do something about, if you don't like something, there is something you can do about it. There are pathways out there and, and, you know, if you're surrounded by those pathways, you can't help but want to utilize them.
1: Yeah, i Agree with everything you said. Uh, one of the things that has intrigued me over 20 years and continues to intrigue me is this leadership dimension among uh, APPs, nurse practitioners, MPs in emergency medicine. And the reason it intrigues me is, is the following. You know, uh, physicians and emergency medicine physicians and residencies and, and, and their fellowships have been around forever. So among the uh, physician community, and among uh, hospital employers and patients and consumers and insurers, everybody knows what an emergency physician does because they've been around forever. And as you just said, they come into the emergency department and they may take a leadership role as the ED director. As a deputy director, they may be put in charge of a committee uh, about issues affecting the ED, like maybe a sepsis uh, leader or a champion uh, or a utilization review. or More than that, they may get used, as you said, within the hospital, on the medical executive committee, on credentials committee, or or some other committee more broader in the organization. But when we talk about, uh, say, PAs, our profession can be argued is somewhat still in its infancy, maybe the latter half of the infancy, but pretty brand new. So, you know, all players involved, likely a good chunk of physicians, certainly employers, recruiters, for sure some hospitals, didn't know exactly quite what to do with us other than just letting us be clinicians and treat people. And I think as time has gone on, they've realized, you know, we've got some folks here with some valuable pre-PA experience. We got this dude, Philip Hen, who's got this trauma experience. He's been in the community. He's worked with people at various levels and at various echelons. This guy has some inherent leadership qualities, and we might be able to use his talents and abilities within the department leading the APP team of MPs and PAs. And you know what? Maybe Philip might have a very unique, valuable perspective if we get him on the credentials committee, uh, because he knows our credentialing needs for PAs and MPs. And and we might even put him on another committee, hospital-wide, our JCO prep committee. So this is why this has always intrigued me, because what I have seen is the world did not set up a organization or a many of choices for PAs and NPs as our profession has involved. More often than not, I believe, pioneers have developed leadership positions for themselves, like... Uh, like
0: yourself. Would, would would you say that that's, that's somewhat true? That characterization? I think so. It's not necessarily always on purpose, either with intent that the APP isn't considered. I sure, think, you know, emergency medicine is it was still probably one of the newer uh, specialties that's out there. Um, it's a specialty that still finds itself with a lot of challenges in terms of where they stand with leadership in the hospital. I mean, you think about it i mean they act as the front door for the hospital yet at the same time i mean you look at what's going on with you know ERs across the country with access to care and resources i mean i don't think that most hospitals are concerning the emergency department for you know let's get them what they need you know kind of a mentality so yeah i think that part of uh for emergency medicine uh as a specialty and as their physicians are trying to work their way into hospital leadership and politics and that hierarchy—they're—they're they're struggling already as it is, and so to include another resource such as a specialty as APPs, it, it happens once they become full. I think that's usually how it works. The role is also kind of complicated by I think what do you, do you have a lot of like new grads and learners and students and stuff like that at your site? A lot of students over yeah. the
1: twenty years, I would only take on a brand new grad. If I had the bandwidth in my schedule right. to do a one to one mentorship on them so that I'd only put them on schedules with me, right. I'd kind of hand select uh, their uh, charts from easy uh, acuity, moderate acuity,
0: and then challenge them with something. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think part of when we talk about leadership, or, or what I think is at odds is, you know, uh, we have a lot of new, Um, APPs who are coming out of school they're also younger and you know their draw towards becoming an APP in the first place wasn't necessarily because they wanted to be involved in politics they wanted to move their profession forward it was more so like uh, I, I like to believe a kind of you know idealistic theology that Oh, I could have a better work-life balance or a better lifestyle, and I think that kind of clashes a little bit with what we we're trying to do in, in terms of trying to create our profession and move it forward. And sometimes I do find struggles with that, especially trying to look for leadership when I have leadership roles available. It's not something that everyone jumps at. You know, I don't. I don't think everyone fully understands too. You know, where we came from and where we are now and what we're trying to do. So it's definitely uh, a project that's still in the works. Yeah, I agree with that. Let's shift over into a little
1: bit of a different uh, topic. There is, I think you would agree, there's wide variance in levels of experience and capabilities from uh, APP to APP in emergency medicine. That's just simply a product of, uh, did they have any kind of follow-on training or experience So what I'd like you to comment on a little bit is, do you think that the demands of the average emergency department allow for supervising physicians sufficient opportunity for themselves to best develop and train junior EM APPs right out of school?
0: It's a great question, Omar. I mean, I think you kind of hinted on like mentorship. And uh, yeah, it does matter where you work you know, well, there are some settings in emergency medicine where as a department, they don't manage orthopedic cases or trauma cases that's left up to the surgeons. And so, I mean, you kind of miss out on those too, you know, because for the physician, they don't even deal with it either. They've kind of, you know, separated themselves from those types of cases, just simply for politics. But yeah, mentorship is a huge portion of it. And and if you don't have a place that, you know can also recognize what a new grad app knows and what they don't know and they haven't you know well emergency medicine residencies are training people to become emergency medicine physicians not specifically emergency medicine teachers and so that's where it kind of comes into the finding a place with a good teacher
1: that that's, that's an awesome statement i would uh certainly uh, agree um that med school and residencies they don't necessarily across the board uh, I'm sure some have better experiences than others, but it's oh, yeah. not a universal thing to say, oh, part of your job,
0: we're gonna teach you how to be a teacher to right. when they get out of school. Right. I, I talked to some of our, re- our residents who are graduating and some of the questions they get asked, or first questions right out the gate is, how have you supervised or how have you managed ABPs? And they kind of don't have a great answer. And that's something I think that actually a lot of uh, physician residency programs are now looking into. Like how do we, we have to teach them to also teach again, and to learn how to, I guess, learn how to manage your resources for the department. Sure. And and I think there's a few inputs
1: to what uh, makes this challenging for any physician, but certainly somebody who's recently finished their residency. And, And some of those inputs that make it challenging are the following. 25, 30 years ago, it may have been universally accepted that PAs and MPs were relegated to fast track. So if that was the case, there really wasn't a lot of cognitive involvement and in, in, in hands-on supervision that a supervising physician needed to do. But of course, as uh, the years uh, progressed, certain demands were placed on, on the workforce such that P's and NPs had to develop uh, their abilities and their scope of practice within the ED widened. Some of those inputs were perhaps uh, financial reimbursement challenges that force companies to change the way they look at the composition of their workforce. Maybe before they had a workforce that represented, the schedule represented 30% APP hours and 70% physician hours. And over the years, I've seen the shift where that has crept closer to 50, and in many cases over the 50%, where most of the scheduled hours in the EDs are now represented by APPs versus physicians. Yet another input could be just a flat-out shortage of emergency physicians and an increase of visits. So the EP just can't be everywhere all at once and can't see everybody. So there's a shift now in, in a reliance on maximizing the capability of an APP. Can up just see uh, sore noses and, and, and hurt ankles? Or can he help uh, on these difficult trauma cases? Can he independently see a, a, a chest pain and, and admit them, or, or confidently and responsibly discharge them home with good follow-up? Do you see that same kind of shift where there's been a a, a uh, increase uh, need now to widen that uh, scope of practice within the ED?
0: Yeah, you know this is kind of ironic, and um, as I'm listening to you, you know, talk about this. I had a chance a couple of years ago to meet one of the first partners at the site I work at. So, you know, they had obviously this discussion about hiring, you know, PAs and MPs. And it was kind of interesting. I mean, his, one of his biggest concerns was like, they're going to get bored. They're not going to stay, you know, if you put them in this fast track type setting without any sort of, you know, growth. And I, I think workforce wise, it's easier to do something like that in a fast track type setting, because, You don't, again, there's not, most places don't have that cognitive bandwidth to do that kind of mentorship. So it's kind of relatively easy. It falls within what they've learned when they graduated. So to be able to move it a step above to actually being able to manage the undifferentiated patient, learning your plan Bs and plan Cs for every patient you see, that takes time and that takes resources and it takes energy. Um, and, And I think that is something that's, you know, going to be where APPs need to be able to have some of that skill set. The workforce for emergency medicine physicians is is interesting. I mean, there's, there's stuff saying there's going to be too many uh, in the next coming years. Yeah. You know, I guess for where I work, which is kind of a middle of California, nowhere, And despite having a residency, we don't have, you know, applicants coming out the door. And I think that majority of emergency medicine, which is, you know, rural and suburban based, we still aren't seeing this huge influx of physicians that supposedly these workforces are projecting. So, yeah, having an APP, having a strong skill set is incredibly important. Two brains are better than one. Um, And I think that's the mantra I always believe in, especially when managing someone who's sick. So, you know, you work in a single access hospital or where there's only one physician, which is in the ER, and they are upstairs dealing with someone in the ICU who's managing the department when something comes in. I mean, that's where we have to have that skill set available to help care for these patients. Agreed.
1: Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, IV Clinicians. Full disclosure, I am the Vice President of Advanced Practice Provider Services at Ivy, And I joined because I was frustrated with the emergency medicine job search. And I'm guessing you might be frustrated too. I also believe that EM, NPs, and PAs have and will continue to provide valuable contributions to the ED by expanding access to quality emergency medicine care to patients. I am very passionate that when the right EM, NP, and PA are matched with the right ED, then emergency physicians and EM, NPs, and PAs create a most powerful team best equipped to tackle the modern and future challenges of emergency medicine. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the emergency medicine workforce, where you can find all 5,549 EDs, filter by your preferences, and connect with the right employers all for free your data is secure, and you pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io. And when you find the right job for you on Ivy, we will send you a bottle of champagne to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right, let's get back to the show. So over the 20 years, you know, I've studied... The APP workforce and, and emergency medicine. And a few minutes ago, we, we we just talked a little bit about some of the inputs that have changed the 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 the, the demand of what kind of APP uh, a, a department needs. And I think you would agree that you know many things are the same from department to department across the country. Yet uh, specific EDs may differ greatly and their specific needs. You just mentioned your site in the rural area. You have a residency program. They may have different needs in an inner city uh, emergency department, uh, different from an academic-centered uh, setting versus possibly a community-based ED. Um, so every ED has its different needs of a particular workforce. And o- over 20 years, uh, I'll just give a couple of examples of like, categorical uh, differences I've seen in the APP workforce. Obviously you have brand new grads, so the brand new grad will have no experience. Many of them very willing to learn something, Uh, of course, depending on who can teach them, if anybody, uh, you can have the mid-range or experienced APP who's learned their craft pretty well on an OJT basis. Uh, But There's also senior experienced APPs that are probably looking uh, at the sunset of their time in the workforce. And they're more than happy to say, you know what, buddy, put me in fast track and I'm fine with that. And right. and, and, and that's fine. But again, I've just described this wide spectrum of experience and uh, capability. Then we have uh, fellowships come on board. Fellowships provide this unique experience for brand new grads or folks that are post-brand post new grad that need to learn experience and they, they can't go somewhere where, the situation allows them to develop in an OJT uh, fashion. So there's not fellowships in every community. What would you advise uh, to an APP who says, listen, I'd love to take advantage of a fellowship. So just not anywhere near me. It's just not in the cards. What other tangible, measurable things can I do? Examples, specific conferences, specific CME, a, a, a specific tailored individual performance Uh, Improvement program. What are your
0: thoughts on those? Absolutely. I mean, uh, there can be that there are people who absolutely will be able to become very high functioning APPs in emergency medicine that don't have to go through a postgraduate training program. There are people out there who have that ability to be very self cognizant and to hold themselves accountable and be humble enough to be able to kind to create their own curriculum, so to speak. Uh, It's just like, I think, I don't know, when we were studying for our pants, right? I mean, you graduate school and now you're trying to like create a, a schedule and a timeline of what you want to learn and how do you assess yourself to be able to take your boards. And you basically have to do that again, just on a very wider scale. And for people like that, I mean, if you have that ability I mean, you can easily look up things like on the uh, on the NCCPA website, for example, uh, what the blueprint questions are for the emergency medicine CAQ. And I think that might be a great way to piggyback if you're doing this all on yourself and how look at that. You know, uh, I think West Coast, we utilize Tintanales a lot. East Coast, maybe what is it? Rosens? Mm-hmm. Yeah use that book, use that book front to back, know what, know what page parathyroid emergencies are on, because I mean, that's going to really set your standard. Then also be able to know your resources, know when, know where to look up. If you're in like, you know, a pinch pediatric atropine dosing or, or uh, sub dissociative ketamine dosing, you know, what's, the, all the CME out there. I mean, there's varying levels of CME. You have the CME for a new person, um, like I think like HippoED is a great example of that. Versus going to Essentials of Emergency Medicine, where now they're talking about like what to do when my patient is already intubated and you are, have are stabilized, and now they're not stabilized anymore. I, I think you have to create a timeline where you attend one of those and then attend another one of those where you get that kind of exposure. Also, if you are really serious about emergency medicine, find a second job in a place that's horrible, (laughs) where you know, it's going to be chaotic where you know, there's no resources because that's really going to force you to have to figure things out on your own. And I mean, you do those things. I think you may have created your own post training (laughs) for better or for worse. So, uh, Yeah. I don't know. What do you, I mean, I didn't go through a postgraduate training, obviously when I, there were very few, um, when I was a graduate. I I mean, how about you? Uh, Is that something that you went through or? Yeah, no. So
1: I, I didn't attend a a postgraduate, uh, training. I was, uh, fortunate enough and I, I cannot stress this enough, very fortunate enough that, uh, One of my second-to-last or third-to-last rotations was uh, emergency uh, medicine. At that point, uh, the employer, who was now Vituity, had that contract, and they asked me to to consider whether or not I I would uh, go on to work uh, for their company, emergency medicine. And at the time, I really had my heart set on internal medicine. I was just like enamored with internal medicine. I thought that was the daddy of everything. I said, no, I'm gonna go do internal medicine. I've been a combat medic and emergency medicine is okay, but I wanna go do that. My experience was really uh, good there and I liked it. So I did the OJT uh, track and as a CAQ uh, came online, I'll be honest, I had reservations from a political point of view with CAQs now corner people only into that niche and would yeah. insurance company stop reimbursement of, oh, you're not CAQ'd in family practice. And I I can't, we can't reimburse for you. But it came right. online and I said, Well, if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. And 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 I looked at the blueprint. And, and it's funny you mentioned, you know, what to do, this autonomous uh self-study program, because I had a buddy who said, Listen, I'm doing some other things. I don't know if I have the time to dedicate everything. And I don't know if I have the money to to do the CAQ and, and prep it. I, I'd like to get to that level. And I said, well, here's the good thing. You could do everything for free, shy of taking the test and applying for it. Look at the blueprint. Look at yeah. what they tell you to do. <laughs> Prepare for it as if you were doing it. So study yeah. these topics, do these procedures, document them And anyway, You're, you're still going to get better and, and you could do it uh, for free. Um, and, and then I, I think you mentioned some follow-on CME. I have been concerned over uh, the tenure of my career that there is some not very good quality CME that could be very expensive, and I don't think it necessarily translates into yeah. operational action on your next shift uh, out there. So I, I do caution and uh, I get concerned because I am very frugal. I get concerned about young uh, APCs uh, maybe picking yeah. CME that's very expensive that that may not translate over. But I think boot camp is is a really good place to start yeah. for a, a lot of these folks and, and the follow on and things like
0: that. Yeah, I think if you're a a consumer and you're trying to understand, there's a lot of EM, you know, boot camps, workshops, and I think it can be quite challenging to understand which one's right for me. It's not always so clear where it's like, this is a level one for you. So it's perfect if you just got a school, you're brand new versus, you know, I wouldn't, if you're a brand new grad, I don't know if I go to the, you know, ASAP, scientific assembly. I mean, I'm not sure you're going to yeah. get what you want aside from being around, you know, people like yourself and getting a bunch of free swag. But um, yeah, it's very easy to get lost as a new grad. <sighs> yeah, definitely. Absolutely. But
1: um, um, let I, me ask you know. about um, we, we talked a little bit uh, before I, I mentioned that there's this variability among the needs uh, 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 and the demands of EDs uh, across the country. It could be geographically based. It could be volume based. It could be resource based. One trend that I've seen throughout my 20 years is emergency department A needs some kind of APP help. Mm -hmm. So they give the recruiter the marching orders, go get us an APP. Mm -hmm. And they check the standard credentials. And they may have worked at an ED somewhere else for about a year. And, and then they get to emergency department A, and it, it's a horror show for all parties involved. Yeah. They yeah. could have uh, selected somebody who, through no fault of their own, they don't have the skill set that matches the demand of maybe moderate to high acuity or high acuity. So then the provider is having a frustrating experience the supervising physicians are frustrated because they expect something out of them that, that they're just not seeing. Um, and, and it just becomes a, a, a situation right for resentment. And, and then the provider eventually leaves. And then we have to start this all over again. And on the other side of that spectrum that I just described, could be a very experienced skill. It could be a Philip Hen. And they say, hey, uh, now that we have you here, Here's what we need you to do, Philip. We need you to just handle fast track uh, for how long? Look, forever. Uh, but, but I have more to offer. Yeah, but that's really what we need from you. That the, the docs are pretty good on their own. I see the docs struggling, covering a lot of patients right now, and I think I've got some some contributions that could help them. No, we just need that. So it's a matter of time, uh, as you mentioned when when you were uh, giving us your example, where that kind of provider gets bored. And then that translates into frustration, and then they leave. So what I've just discussed is I see a lot of mismatch uh, in in hiring. and None of it is intentional. Part of it is because sometimes we're seen as an APP is an APP is an APP is an APP. And there isn't an appreciation for the nuance of the individual uh, skill set. Or sometimes there's an underestimation of, We're going to get this brand new grad, Omar Nava. We'll, we'll train him up when he gets here. And and, and then, you know, when Omar Nava gets there, there's not a dedicated, disciplined way of training me up. Uh, And so I don't get to the level of development that those around me desire. Do you see this kind of mismatch that I've described?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, for me, uh, my experience is it's more so the, oh, they've been a, They've been in the ER for 10 years, there's, you know, they have all this experience and then they come and you realize their experience has been triaging and rme and not actually managing the undifferentiated patient. Or I have people who say that they went through fellowship, that, oh, that they're fellowship trained. And then when I kind of dig deeper, I realize they didn't go through fellowship. They went through what is essentially new grad training. So those variances do exist. And to the people who are looking to hire, you definitely do have to do some homework to understand what it it is that they've done. And that's also a challenge, you know, for the APP. I mean, I interviewed someone a couple of years ago who like 15 years in the ER doing nothing but fast track. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but you know, they, again, this mismatch was like, you know, this person wanted. X amount of pay and I'm like I can't fit this into a pay scale of someone who I understand you know you obviously want to be respectful for their years of service but at the same time they're asking to do was essentially one-fifth of our job and I can't pay them this so yeah there's absolutely a mismatch and it's very challenging and and I think you're right I mean it doesn't do well for both parties when you hire someone that ends up being dissatisfied whether they are not getting the mentorship or learning opportunities that they're looking for, or, you know, they are overqualified, which is something that is just detrimental. I mean, you need to have someone who's been, I think, around right now and and has done that homework and understands those questions to ask. And sometimes, you know, that's hard with, uh, when you have a hiring partner that isn't necessarily healthcare, that has a healthcare background to understand those things.
1: Yeah, I think on its most simplistic level, if a recruiter is looking for an emergency physician, mm-hmm. they're looking: Did you finish your residency? Right. Did you get your board certification? Right. Do you have a license, unencumbered license to practice? I I should be able to put you in any ED uh, in in my company's footprint. Right. That is n- not at all the approach that we can take no. with APPs for the very reason and example you just cited, and, and some of the reasons that that I've cited. Um, I was very fortunate in the position that I just uh, stepped down, a leadership position, which I held for about 17 plus years at, at this specific uh, site. No matter who the employer was, I'd always insisted I will have a final say-so with, in concert with my director in hiring. This will not be a blind uh, recruiting or interviewing because I'm going to be the guy that's going to be that, that's going to be held responsible by my bosses on why isn't Philip doing this? Why did Philip send that person home? So I, I, I'm going to be involved on on the front end, but I'm right. also realistic uh, enough to know that that doesn't occur uh, all across the country.
0: I, I, I understand that. Would you Would you agree? Yeah, Omar, absolutely. I mean. You're absolutely right on that. It's uh something that is a challenge. I guess it's a blessing and a curse, right? I mean, the whole <laughs> idea of having an APP is that they they can be molded. But I mean, yes. What happens to that mold when you leave that site? You know, that's that's I think where the struggle becomes, you know, I I had a friend who uh she you know, just off topic, she's a surgical PA. And she worked for this surgeon for many years, and now he finally retired. Well, I mean, uh, you know, he she did a great job working for that surgeon. But now when she's interviewing for other jobs, the expectations are different, and they're not sure. necessarily what she did. And so now, you know, what does all those years of experience mean, you know?
1: Philip, you're part of a movement as a leader in the emergency department among APPs that's helping to shape the workforce right now? Uh, because as we've just dis- discussed, other entities don't know quite exactly what to do with us all the time, and they may not know uh, exactly what our full potential or capability is all the time in every AD. So you, in the position that you're in and what you've done, you're helping to shape the workforce. What are other targets of opportunities that you see for APPs within the department or the hospital. I've thrown out ideas, like uh, we just talked about being part of the interviewing process. I've thrown out things like potential being on the credentialing committee, uh, maybe being an advisor to medical exec committee, maybe being part of a JCO uh, committee. What what targets of opportunity do you see for
0: APPs in the department of the hospital other than just being a clinician? I think that there are roles and regards to like an interdisciplinary practice committee. I um, you know, that's something that many hospitals have created these days. I think being involved in the peer review process, I, I think being involved in actual med staff meetings, um, I think being involved in, you know, inter kind of relation types uh, scenarios uh, are, are where an APP can become so invaluable, especially, you know, as they spend so much time, boots on the ground, caring for patients. So they kind of, to, to, you know, bring up the challenges that you face between consultants or between, you know, transferring facilities. I think that's probably one of the biggest niches, I think, that APPs can and, and, and should be involved in. Of course, education, uh, being involved in uh, site leadership for uh, your department, and also being involved in outreach programs Uh, are also huge areas of um, involvement awesome great
1: as we draw closer to the end of our time here together um, for our audience uh, what book or movie would you recommend to our audience it could be anything could be medical related em related could have nothing to do with medicine but something that has really struck your fancy book or movie
0: for what I'm watching right now, obviously I'm watching The Last of Us because now I'm deathly afraid of any sort of mold and fungi. I just um, started that last night. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> did you – oh, uh, well, I don't know. Do you play video games? Have you ever um, – you No, know, uh, I'm, I'm an old
1: fool from the old school <laughs> that grew up on arcade and the original Donkey Kong and and, and all yeah. of that. And a little bit of Madden when it came out, and I think. <laughs>
0: Um, as far as like an inspirational book, um, this is old and it's called Mountains Beyond Mountains. Dr. Paul Farmer, he recently passed away, uh, such a selfless man who basically dedicated his life and his career to treating, you know, uh, the diseases like tuberculosis um, in these thermal countries, but not just treating it, but going to manufacturers and getting them to to adjust the prices for medicine and to kind of create an actual framework for care. Um, I think he was one one of the most inspirational things of being selfless. And uh, it's something that I kind of always keep in the back of my mind.
1: Awesome. Philip, I can't thank you enough for joining us on the podcast. I really enjoyed our talk and I'm certain uh, that uh, you've been able to enlighten and inform a lot of our listeners. Any parting words
0: for our audience, Philip? Uh, no, I just want to thank everyone um, at influence and also I want to thank you, Omar, for inviting me. And, of course, as you said earlier, um, to all the people out there in the ERs who, are, who have dealt with COVID and, and post-COVID, um, we're going to keep fighting the good fight. Awesome. Everybody, thank you for listening to the
1: Emergency APP Workforce Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. I am your host, Omar Nava. For those of you practicing emergency medicine, I know the sacrifices you make and I know some of the challenges you face. More importantly, I know your value to the workforce market. We'll see you again soon in the next episode. Thank you.